Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 18th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. We have our September issue up and available for your perusal at commentary.org, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. And you know you should subscribe, so go subscribe. You really ought to. It's one way you can you can support the podcast if you if that's the uh, main element of your enjoyment of commentary. Uh but we have uh, a remarkable issue up, um, one of our, our biggest in, in years, 72 pages uh, in print, um, with uh, Yuval Levin's masterful article we talked about yesterday on what we got right in the COVID fight, our own Christine Rosen, two pieces in the same issue, one on the uh, question of whether there's uh, going to be a parents' movement in the United States, and the other about... Uh, the continuing war on objectivity on the part of the mainstream media. We have Joseph Epstein writing about cats for those of you who love cats. And I'm not talking about the musical cats. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about a lot more that we have having the issue. Ed Kozner on the 30 year anniversary of the crown Heights pogrom. Um, Brendan Stewart on the 20th anniversary of nine 11 uh, and the efforts to, um, uh, retcon 9-11 into an American imperialist aggressive act or something that uh, that was conveniently used by American imperialists to uh, in the in the minds of leftist journalists to um, allow America to work its imperialist will and why this is an evil idea as we can see we're about to talk about with Afghanistan right now uh, Noah Rothman um, pick one thing that happened in the last 12 hours uh, that particularly uh, horrified you, surprised you, or galled you. One, one incident, because we have incidents all day for the, you know, in the 24 hours since we talked last. Yeah, Try just one. one. I mean, that's, that's just, a struggle. Well, we're um, going to keep It's actually it. not. It's actually not. Um, okay. Let me just pull it up because I want the exact wording. Um, and this, I think, was... You know, this this has been developing minute by minute, so it's difficult to say, you know, what the last latest development is that's going to be an absolute nightmare. But um, Washington Post reported yesterday, and according to a couple of sources that other reporters had at the New York Times, and I think Politico confirmed it, uh, that the United States estimates now, estimates, somehow estimates that we have roughly ten to 15,000 American citizens, not, you know, the tens of thousands, probably close to 80,000 people who have uh, valid claims to or SIV status, just American citizens in Afghanistan. We don't know where most of these people are. Um, Most of them are not in U.S. custody at this uh, airport in Kabul, which is already overrun. Um, And we have no plan to get them out. The plan does not exist. The mechanisms don't exist. The logistics don't exist. We do not know how to get these people out. And any one of them could become a hostage that can tie policymakers' hands. It's an incredible liability. And the notion here that the United States, the world's only hegemon, the sole power capable of sustained power projection across the globe, just can't do it. Not because we don't have the capacity, we just do not have the will. The will does not exist in the White House or in the Pentagon. And that is a, a thought that I do not think I, I would ever encounter, much less express. Um, it is shocking 
the extent to which we have settled in a warm bath of national decline. And the assumption here on the part of both you know, coalitions, the most vocal aspect of both, both coalitions, that this is what Americans want. Americans just want retreat and surrender and to sacrifice everything we've gained in this country and, 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 and put into it is, um, is incredibly disheartening. But the prospect that that portends, and I'm hoping to God it doesn't materialize, but the prospect of a national disaster, uh, you know, a, a, a lost Dunkirk um, looms very large. I think Dunkirk's an interesting analogy, obviously, because the Dunkirk analogy is that there was a an army uh, trapped uh, behind enemy lines, effectively um, trapped on a beach, uh, almost four hundred thousand strong, and uh, and there, but it, there was a beach, and there was a way to get boats across the ocean to get the people uh, and an uncharacteristically calm channel. Right. An act of God facilitated that. Right, exactly. So you had this uh, astonishing mass evacuation. Um, I think in some ways this brings home, we keep having this sort of discussion about how we have a forever war and there's a forever war and we need to end the forever war. It's enough with the forever war. Um, But for most everybody this is an abstraction. Most people in the United States don't have relatives in the military. Most people in the United States don't know anybody who served in Afghanistan. Most people don't know anybody who would be working in Afghanistan in part as kind of an ancillary product of the mission that we went into 20 years ago in Afghanistan. And this is what happens in war. In war, when when the enemy takes over territory, the people who are on the other side are in grave peril. Uh, That is the nature of war from time immemorial, and it is as though the American military and the White House did not reckon with this possibility at all, as though they too thought this war was an abstraction, that this wasn't a conventional circumstance in which the takeover of territory by a hostile adversary would endanger the people who remained when the government fell. Okay, but I, I have to I have to go on a slight rant here. I, I have a family member who is is in the active military services in the Army's 10th Mountain Division, which is currently in Afghanistan. They are part of the group that's protecting the airport right now. And I am I'm enraged not just on behalf of our American military servicemen and servicewomen, whom this this administration has has thinly veiled contempt for, but the idea that American citizens who are non-military, civilians, are just collateral damage in Joe Biden's campaign promise. That's the part that's shocking to me. So let's let's contrast what the UK is doing for its citizens who are still in Afghanistan. They have a phone number they can call. They have procedures they're trying to put in place to get those people to an evacuation point. If you're an American in Afghanistan right now, you fill out a form they actively discourage, they say, don't call the embassy, obviously, because the embassy has gone. Um, don't, you know, just make your way to the Kabul airport, make your way to the airport, and we cannot guarantee your safety. That is not how this country treats its citizens when they are in peril in a foreign nation. That's not how we do things. And and this administration is actively tying the hands of the military, which could actually do more to get out there. They're not allowed to. It's, it's a complete debacle. There's no other word for it. And we are going to see Americans, I mean, setting aside what's happening right now to all the Afghans, we're going to see Americans die because of the incompetence of this president. And I don't know any other way to say it. I'm still angry. I thought I would be calmer as the days go by. But the more that I read about, the more I see, the more angry I become. 
and our allies, um, <clears throat> our standing in the world is, is tangibly reduced uh, as a result of this effort. Um, uh, German officials are fit to be tied over how this went down. You know, they're talking about how, you know, we're, we're basically, we're, we're puppets of the American regime. They tell us to do something and we march to it. And they, they're expressing much discontent. Parliament is on fire this morning with speeches from Labour and Conservative. In Britain, in Britain. In Britain. Yes, just just dumping all over this administration. Um, Boris Johnson has shamed this administration by pledging to take upwards of 20,000 Afghan refugees, which is a commitment we should have made and somehow cannot for reasons I do not understand. The United States military, which has secured the perimeter of this Kabul airport, subsequently um, betrayed, for lack of a better word, our Dutch allies um, when they prevented, according to this Reuters report, Um, U.S. uh, forces directly prevented armed security forces from the United States um, allowing uh, Afghans to enter the gates, even if they had the right credentials, Dutch credentials, to enter the plane, a Dutch plane that was only on the ground for about a half hour before it took off empty, empty, because people can't get through the cordon. Um, our, our, Our European allies are very disappointed in us and are very vocal about it, and um, we should be humiliated by that. So here's the uh, you know, the longer this goes on, it, it occurs to me. No, something you had said uh, since Biden first announced that that we were doing this swifty, this swift uh, withdrawal, um, that we would be back in Afghanistan at a at a time not of our choosing. Uh, so that time seems to have been immediately right. Uh, We've now sent back in, uh, I don't know, 6,000 uh, uh, more troops, maybe more. Um, when are they going to leave? Con- considering that we have, uh, I don't know, five to 15,000 uh, American Americans there who, who we have no way of getting out with checkpoints, with t- Taliban checkpoints. and Like, we're kind of in now uh, <laughs> in, in some other sense. We, well, we, are, we, we have a new war on our hands, essentially. Here's another thing, and we should get into um, uh, Jake Sullivan's press conference yesterday, which was absolutely the National Security Advisor. National Security Advisor uh, Jake Sullivan and um, Admiral Kirby is the Defense Department spokesman, both of whom intimated sort of obliquely that the Kabul airport was not fully under control. The military side is, but the civilian side, mm, a little shaky. Um, CNN had a report last night, which is just, it was mind-bogglingly frustrating because of the bureaucratic morass in which our allies are stuck in trying to get on these planes. But it cannot function in the way we want it to as this massive source of of an airlift, you know, one of the world's greatest airlifts. It cannot function in that way until we get the commercial side up and running and, and commercial flights resuming. And that is not even on the horizon, unforeseeable. So we're just staring down the barrel of uh, this human tide you know, converging on the airport, outside this airport, making access to the airport inoperative, and also ceasing to function as a, as a source, uh, as a runway that we can take civilians and military personnel out of Afghanistan. It is, it's, the strategy is collapsing before our eyes. The idea here on the Biden, part of the Biden administration was make your way to the airport, however you can, if you can, and we'll get you out that way. That didn't last 12 hours. Well, and they're claiming the Taliban. It's like, it's okay. We talked to the Taliban. They said they're going to let you through. Well, there's clear evidence now that that is not, in fact, what they're doing. They are blocking access to the airport. That's what they're doing. Also, the Taliban is now a many-headed hydra. Let's, I mean, uh, the circumstance here is that uh, you have uh, tens of thousands of Taliban individual P 
people wandering through the city doing whatever it is that they do. That is also uh, an element of war after the takeover. That's when the looting happens. That's when the booty is taken. And in this case, there's a kind of ideological or religious or you know theocratic booty to be had, which is the humiliation of women, uh, the you know the subjugation of people uh, under your under your jackboot, um, individual fighters, individual Taliban members, because clearly you know they, they are not yet organized. This all happens so fast, even for them, that it's not clear that they have an organized plan for how they are going to administrate the city and the chaos is going to go on for days and days and days and days and days. That's one of the things that happens and that's why Americans are uniquely at risk. And we're not we're now we're only talking about the Americans in Kabul. Not every American is in Kabul. In fact, we don't know where the Americans are or how many of them are 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 about and outside of the you know are, are not within a mile of the airport, there where they would have to somehow you know ford ford the streets, um, you know at 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 immense risk just to get somewhere near where they obviously couldn't. I mean, imagine you're going to a ballpark, and there are twenty five thousand people standing in front of the one entrance to the ballpark everyone trying to get into this one doorway. That's what it's like there. That is the circumstance under which an American who is, has to make his way to the airport in order to get on maybe a plane or to be protected by American forces. Um, yeah, the impotence that this that this uh, suggests is, I mean, I would say pretty close to being without precedent. I mean, we had a circumstance, of course, in which we had 52 diplomats taken hostage in Iran in 1979. Um, uh, we now have an incident in which we have thousands upon thousands of Americans who are, I mean, they're not hostage because they're not, you know, in the hands of the Taliban, but they are without resources and without ability to protect themselves and without any real possibility of getting to safe harbor. And this, I think, gets to a slightly larger point about the bet. And as it turns out, all of these sorts of decisions are bets. The bet that Biden has made here and the Biden people you know, working for him are making here. And the bet is that this is going to, in the end, go better than it looks like it's going to go. It was always that bet. We're going to pull out. Afghan forces would stand up or they would stand up at least long enough for us to be away long enough so that when they fell, they fell on their own and not because we left or where you could make a case that they fell on their own, right? So that was the first bet. That bet failed. We're, we now have this bet. The bet is in two months, it's not going to look so bad. Actually, we made a deal with the Taliban. The Taliban held the deal. They let us emerge. They didn't want to poke the bear they didn't want to get us angry at them. They want to control the cut. They have their own internal mission. It's not really about us. And we'll get out. And in two months, this will all be like a bad memory. And it's always bad. Everything is always chaotic and disorganized. And yeah, we're going to take a hit for it. But it's not going to matter that much. And that's the bet. And if the bet fails... Um, not only is American, you know, prestige harm, not only will no one trust the United States again, 
you know, when we say we're your friends, we're here to help you, we're going to we're going to have your back, right? That that's over with forever. But um Americans are going to be staring down the barrel of the fact that a choice was made to as I said yesterday, pull off the band-aid and the cut wasn't healed and the blood is now flowing out of the wound and we're going to go into sepsis and Biden owns that entirely, entirely in a way that almost no one has ever owned any decision ever because of the fact that it was a decision he did not have to make. So Joe Biden's unnerving absence during this crisis, um, I really don't think can be attributable to just lethargy or apathy alone. Something is going on in this administration because they are just dragging him in front of the cameras to laboriously address what the plebes are demanding of him. The, you know, the collapse of American power overseas in such a spectacular fashion. And today he plans to make an address on COVID response, exclusively on the COVID response, only talking about that. So maybe what, this is a signal to the media that the news cycle in Afghanistan is over, like move on a little bit. Um, won't take questions, obviously. But, you know, you're already seeing the dam sort of begin to break on, among Democrats. Um, you know, you had sort of a leading indicator that he is, nevertheless, um, chairman of the uh, Senate Foreign uh, Affairs Committee, Senator Menendez, already jumping off the boat saying, you know, something really terrible happened here and we need a full accounting of it from this administration, making no excuses. I haven't seen just about, I haven't seen any Democrat make excuses for this thing. You know, they change the subject, they talk about women's issues or what have you and human rights. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi had sort of a half-hearted effort to support the, the president's decision at the same time, criticizing it in the same statement. So if he does that, if he just shows up on the stage and says, you know, COVID, blah, 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 and leaves, I don't think it's hard to envision the dam breaking. I don't think it's hard to envision Democrats getting off the boat and saying, okay, this administration is just not addressing this, the urgent crisis that we have here. There are, there are some Biden boosters who continue to pretend as though this is not a colossal foreign policy crisis with, that is urgent and ongoing. That hasn't caught on. That message really doesn't have much of an audience they're going to keep trying it, I think, until it absolutely explodes on the tarmac. But this could be it. That could be this afternoon. You know, someone uh, mentioned in, in a story or in, in passing uh, the other day that while Biden's bunkering in his Delaware basement uh, was an excellent strategy, as it turned out, for running an election you know, during an election, it's the absolute opposite during a moment of national crisis. We are in a moment of national crisis and him hiding deepens that crisis. And I think that that, that for some reason, the people on his team and, and, and in some ways they trotting him out in front of cameras, not you know to make a statement and then disappearing back to vacation without taking questions is almost worse. Like you'd really just rather keep him hidden or have him come out and face the music and they're doing neither. It's very strange. Okay. So, you know, there are going to be economic ramifications and consequences from this. We've already seen economic ramifications and consequences over the last month from the uh, Delta variant, we have um, bad uh, consumer spending numbers uh, for the month of July. And if you want to follow granularly what is going to happen as a result of what has happened over this weekend and this week, you need to go with our friends at the Bonson Group, David Bonson uh, and his team uh, with $3 billion under management. 
uh, and David's daily and weekly newsletters on the internet. You can sign up and get for free the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. The dctoday.com, which comes out around 6 p.m., offers a snapshot of what happened during that day in the markets at the Fed in Washington with some political uh, uh, and social uh, analysis. Uh, DividendCafe.com does a larger, more 30,000-foot zoom-out macroeconomic and political analysis uh, that comes out on Fridays. Um, We have no idea where this is going to go, but obviously uh, the standing of the United States and the court of world opinion and the question of whether or not our rivals, in particular China, are going to use this moment uh, as a, a slingshot to uh, to overtake us uh, in in suggesting to people that they are a more reliable ally and a more reliable place to place your money and all of that. That's a very real possibility, and that's why you want to go today to DividendCafe.com and sign up for David Bonson's two newsletters from the Bonson Group, The Antidote to the Intellectual Spaghetti of the Financial Services and Management Industry. Abe, last night, um, uh, we continue to have the sort of intellectual class that Noah's talking about that is a, a bunch of whom are defending uh, Biden and uh, continue to say what's happened here is the retroactive justification for the decision to pull out because because we pulled out and the collapse was so fast, therefore we shouldn't have been there at all. So we should have pulled out, but it but it was executed badly. No one can say it wasn't executed. Oh, it was executed so badly, and it's a real competence issue, right? And that way, it's sort of like Biden's Katrina. It's a competence issue. It's not that he's to blame for the hurricane. You can't blame Bush for the hurricane. But FEMA's response and what happened in New Orleans, oh, it's a competence issue. And he didn't know what he was doing and he didn't care. And so he suffered. And Biden's going to suffer that. That's in the sort of general mindset of people who are then willing to say, but you can't blame him for this because we can see from the results that the decision was appropriate. And um, this is driving you mental. It's it's totally dishonest um, because asserting that the, the, um, the, the, the debacle justifies the debacle. Uh, in other words, that since, since uh, the Afghan army couldn't stand on its own, it shows we, sh- we should have left it on its own. Um, this supposes that the that people who like us and others who want who wanted us wanted the U.S. to stay in Afghanistan um, are still arguing, for example, that we're there to turn uh, Afghanistan into um, a robust, thriving democracy that can take care of all its problems on its own. I don't. I don't know anyone who's who's you know who believes that that's why we are still there, um, and and thinks that that is possible within the near future or or in the mid the the or even in the long term. Um, it's okay to acknowledge that the mission has changed since the time we got there, and what the mission became was keeping the Taliban out of power, um, and 
That's a very good mission. And it is one that it turns out the U.S. can accomplish. Um, and that is what we've been doing. So to argue and so to argue that the, 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 the meltdown shows that the mission was wrong is kind of to lie about what the mission was. But that, that we, we were not there to enable the Afghan army to stand up a, a, alone without us. Right. I would add it's not, it wasn't just to keep the Taliban out of power. That was part of the grander mission. The grander mission was to interrupt, disrupt, and deter uh, non-state actors in Central Asia and South Asia. Well, um, we used, we used Afghanistan as a base to execute uh, strikes in, in Pakistan yeah. and no longer have that capacity. Right. Now, here's the thing. The other part of this that dri- is driving me is, 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 is driving me to distraction is that we shifted our mission almost exclusively to what you were talking about, Abe, in 2015. In 2015, we began to withdraw from active, on-the-ground on combat role and surrendered that role or assigned that role or moved that role to the Afghan army with us, with, with us providing air support, intelligence, logistics, training, and advice. Okay, Trump, and we got to talk about Trump for a while, Trump got impatient. He said it was stupid. We should get out. And he inaugurated unilaterally this process beginning in 2018 towards some kind of a negotiated exit. But let's get back to the numbers here. 2015 to 2021. That is six years that is six years in which America effectively retreated from any role on the ground in holding territory and using our military force to engage directly face-to-face, you know, gun-to-gun, whatever you want to call it, with the Taliban. Six years. It was a different war. It was a different kind of military combat. It was a different kind of struggle. And it was going, and I hate to say this because I know there are people, it wasn't going fine, but it was going exactly as such a mission could go. It was going exactly as such a mission could go. Now, our friends at the Long War Journal, Bill Roggio, Tom Tom Jocelyn say, the war losing this war was inevitable beginning in 2018 when Donald Trump started this negotiation because once you negotiate with the Taliban you are negotiating your exit and if the Taliban then see you are going to exit then it's just a matter of them either agreeing not agreeing do whatever it is they do until such time as you run out of patience with the process and say okay we're we're just we're leaving now we've had enough and it took 3 years and they may have lied to themselves, Zal Khalazad, who was hired by Trump to do this job of negotiating it and then kept on by Biden to continue the negotiation with the Taliban. Maybe they deluded themselves that they were getting somewhere, that they were getting things that they needed, that it was, as Trump claimed falsely and despicably last night on Sean Hannity's show, that this was a, he had planned a conditions-based withdrawal. It was no such thing. Had he remained president in 2020, I think he would have pulled out in in May, just like he said he would have, and we would have seen something probably not all that dissimilar from this. I don't really know. We can't know that, obviously. But it was six years 
And we have to go back to the point that it, we were the Band-Aid and we pulled the Band-Aid off. But it had to be pulled off. The Taliban weren't going to pull it off. They didn't have the means to pull it off. The Afghanis didn't pull. We pulled it off ourselves. We pulled off the Band-Aid. The Band-Aid could have stayed there. It wasn't losing its, its adhesion. It wasn't, you know, looking like it was going to fall off and then the, we were going to reap the whirlwind. It was impatience and a desire to say, I ended this war that led to this result under two presidents. And right now, we are seeing Trump attempting to make hay out of a process that he began and whose shame and dishonor he shares a piece of. And we cannot, I mean, Biden owns what happened here and he's been president for, you know, seven months and he owns what happened here. But he was building on something that Trump started and Trump's idea of saying this is the worst humiliation in American history, which is what he said, as he always says, everything is the worst or the best or whatever it is that he did. If that's the case, then he needs to hang his head in shame and go bury himself in a hole of his own devising because he sent us on this path out of his own feckless foolishness and 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 sloganeering nonsense about how we shouldn't be doing what we were doing when what we were doing I believe we're going to see was clearly better than what was going to happen if we weren't doing it. So <clears throat> the bet that the the Biden boosters and the White House and you know the 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 feats in foreign policy, graybeards, consensus, you know, what have you. They all think that this is probably just going to blow over in terms of public sentiment, that the public was really over Afghanistan. They don't like what they're seeing now, but they'll forget about it in two or three months. It's not 2003 anymore. You know, uh, the, the neocon moment is over. Nobody's interested in power projection. They only want to, you know, sink every last dollar into the welfare state, you know. Um, is that... Do we think that's true? I mean, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know if I have my finger on the pulse of the country anymore. But obviously, they're not going to like what they're seeing. And poll numbers are going in the wrong direction for Joe Biden. But Americans are of two minds on this. They do want to get out. They don't want to get out this way. Um, what does this look like in two months if it gets, you know, if it get, assuming it gets worse in the near term and and reach settles into something re- resembling a sustainable status quo in the near in the in the next two or three months? You know, where does the public go on this? I mean, that's the bet. The bet is if if it looks horrible and terrible things happen to Americans and even and even worse things happen to Afghanis, they're not going to like it and they're going to be against what happened. I mean, it's already happening. We should say right. that there have been there have been demonstrations against Taliban rule that have been put down violently. Um, you're already seeing some, post, yeah. Yeah, something resembling a Northern Alliance 2.0 congealing around Mazari Sharif. Um, that sort of thing doesn't necessarily stop with our evacuation efforts once we've, we're, we're settled into it. I mean, that will only get worse. And policymakers are going, going to find the prospect of militant groups, well-armed militant groups, well-funded militant groups, re, you know, recongealing and, and developing the power to export terrorism again. They're not going to find that a tolerable prospect. So, yeah, look, exactly. Look, know. we all have to hope that the bet was good, right? We all have to hope that 
whatever they're talking to the Taliban about holds and that the Americans can get out safely and that the Europeans can get out safely and that over the next 10 days there will be, even though it's going to look awful and look disordered, that it's all going to end up with our people out and we're, we're gone and with a minimum of, of horror to our forces and everything like that. And that's the bet. That's where we started. Biden's bet is that this is going to go better than it looks like it's going to go right now. And I hope it does, because every person should hope that there isn't a massacre and every person should hope against hope, because there's no reason not to hope it, that, you know, the Taliban learned their lesson and that the press conference that they gave the other day is the new Taliban and not the old Taliban and that they're not going to be vicious to women. They're not going to kill tens of thousands of people and all of that. But hope is not a strategy. And generally speaking, you you know, that hope, we can have it. It's It'll happen or it won't happen. And you bet, I mean, it's 95% likely it's not going to happen. I mean, well, we know that they've just become more sophisticated propagandists, the Taliban. So, for example, they, they did this whole thing about, oh, you know, we'll, we'll respect women's rights uh, according to Sharia law. So right there you have a contradiction. But they they, they had a, a female anchor at state the state news service interview, uh, you know, someone about this. And he, he repeated this propaganda. And then the next day she was fired, of course, and it replaced with a male anchor. So it's not, I mean, they haven't changed. They've just changed their propaganda strategy. I will say this, though, to the question of Americans' uh, uh, feelings about this. It is true that Americans in general don't like this sort of forever war. They The, the polling numbers about Afghanistan supported what, what Biden uh, was doing. But Americans also don't like to be humiliated on the world stage. And I think if we start seeing the humiliation of those Americans who are still trapped in Afghanistan, not able to get out, if they are in any way tortured or or held hostage or or made pawns in the Taliban's games that they're going to start playing very quickly with with the West, then that that will be a shift in public opinion. We do not like to be humiliated on the public stage. And I think that's why you see the really sharp change in the withdrawal poll numbers uh, this week. When we see ourselves bungling something on the world stage, that gets people's attention, even if the the details of a long foreign uh, strategy in Afghanistan have not for the past 10 years. I mean, there's no way to get these Americans out. No, they're not. It cannot be done. They're trapped. They're going to have to go to ground for the foreseeable future. Right. And there's no contingency plan to get them out. So inevitably, if we don't address the situation, it will become... One of the worst humiliations, perhaps even a bloody humiliation for the United States in its history. Right. Well, um, I want to talk about the right and its response to what's going on. But first, let me talk to you about our new sponsor, Raycon Wireless Earbuds. No matter how you're feeling about getting back out there, if we're getting back out there, There's no denying it's an adjustment to get out of your house and go back to normal. And when the world gets too loud, something people really love to do is create their own soundtrack. And they can do that by popping in Raycon wireless earbuds. Look, sometimes you need upbeat music to pump you up before you see people. Stay calm with some guided meditation. You're going to the gym. You want some you know, thrilling, upbeat music, you're taking a walk, uh, you know, in, in a park, you want calming, pretty music, whatever it is you like, whatever kind of playlist you want or you need, 
Raycons are the best way to listen. They come with a bunch of gel tips for your comfort, and unlike some other brands, they don't stick out of your ears. And Raycons have a 32-hour battery life, so you can listen to what you want when you want for a really long time. They started half the price of other premium auto brands, audio brands, excuse me, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee, so you can't really lose. Give them a try. You'll see what I mean. Create your own soundtrack with Raycon. Right now, commentary listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash commentary. That's B-U-I-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash commentary to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash commentary. So uh, among the issues that we haven't even brought up is the continuing uh, catastrophe involving those who work directly or even indirectly for the uh, Americans and the West in their efforts to do whatever it is that we've done in Afghanistan, 15 to 20,000 people who have applied for asylum in the United States and others. And I note with horror and disgust and, not, and no surprise, but and it's very important that we focus on this uh, because it's very convenient to say that everything bad that is happening is happening you know, in the precincts of people whom we, you know, who who are our ideological foes. But Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, people at the Federalist, others are saying things like, why are we even talking about bringing these Afghans here? We can't bear to bring them here. They don't share our culture. They don't share our values. They should go somewhere where they're, where people like them are, where they live and they have, and they have their own way because we don't, you know, they're just not appropriate for here. We're creating an Afghan refugee flood. Stephen Miller, Tucker, Laura, Sean Davis, uh, a, a bunch of other people. And um, I mean, I, I, I don't I, I don't have the vocabulary with which to describe my horror, loathing, disgust, disdain, and repulsion with this expression uh, of these views. You could have said exactly the same thing about the Vietnamese in 1975. Who, which Democrats did, by the way, including Joe Biden. <clears throat> that's right. Robert right. Byrd called them prostitutes. They all objected to the resettlement of Vietnamese refugees. Yeah, yeah, because which is why the Vietnamese came here and voted Republican reliably. Yeah, and and we got a million of them, uh, and they have been a a glorious addition to the American melting pot. Uh, every experience that we have had with refugee populations who come here seeking, you know, in in desperation, Cubans, Laotians, Vietnamese. Come to this country, and they and they are provide an extraordinary benefit to us. Uh, we have no reason to think otherwise of the Afghani's, and these uh, these the, these people are um, are are anti-American, anti-human, anti-compassion, anti-serious, and they are just playing to the worst elements of the of this kind of uh, turn the stone over and see the actual, uh, you know, blood and soil Americanism for what it is. I really think they're misreading the room here. Um, the, 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 I, they're, they're tr- sort of, this is just inertia. 
that has led them to determine that in this moment of abject national humiliation, what the right really wants is xenophobia. I, I don't think they're they're really taking the temperature here very well. And frankly, between the left, which is committed to capitulation, and the right, which is equally capitulatory, and you know, we can't we can't help our friends and allies. We're just a spent force. We should literally. Josh Hammer at Newsweek said that this is the late stage empire needs to come home and just see to its own its own affairs because you know we're we're a spent force abroad. There's a huge, horribly underserved market for pride, for national ambition, for having some spine and some sense of America's mission in the world. No one's speaking to that constituency. And I, I think it's a pretty big constituency. Yeah, because they all hate this country. Let's get let's get Genuinely. right down to the yeah, brass true. tacks. They're this is what him. you mentioned with Josh Hammer. That was George McGovern's slogan in 1972. Come home, America. Right. Come home, America. Tend to your own garden. We go out in the world and either we are corrupted by the world or we corrupt the world. Nothing good comes of it. We need to pull up our walls and sit in here. And you know why? Because we're worse than the Taliban. How about that we're worse than the Taliban logic? How about this whole idea that here we are and, you know, they're more serious than we are. They're serious. They Not want serious. They have a set of values. They have a set of values and we don't. They don't have drag time story hour. And therefore, they're better than we are. Our problem is that we're worse. We're worse than the Taliban. This is actually an idea that is, I think it's, it's an idea. It's a facile idea. It's, it's, it's mostly being said in some bizarre way to be part of the idiot aspect of the culture wars in the United States that, that makes it impossible to have serious conversations about what really needs to be done to combat wokeism and anti-Americanism. But um, the hatred for this country that is emanating from parts of the, of the, what, you know, we consider the right and this idea that we're getting what we deserve because we are so morally stained that everything we touch turns to garbage and and we need to leave places alone because we make them worse and we make ourselves worse and and we're just going to sit here and rot is is a very striking fact and that's why I think where Noah's right that we have a there's a real underserved market here except I'm worried cuz I'm kind of struck by the fact that this is the market this is how people are reading the market on both sides. Hey, well, they, where they, you, yeah, Christine, go I ahead. Was, I was just going to add that having grown up among um, fundamentalists, there, there is a strange, it, it sounds perverse, but there's a real longing for the end. There's a longing for the end times. There's a longing for decay because it fulfills, in, in the case of how I was raised, it fulfills certain prophecies that would eventually see your team come out on top down the line in heaven. Long time, long time ago. Um, but the idea that there was a real sense that as you see everything collapse around you, it actually justifies the values you claim to hold. And that's true on both sides. The difference is the outcome, I think. I don't know what the outcome is for these 
people on the right. It really it, it's confusing. On the left, it's very clear. It's a it's a massive growth and extension of state power here domestically. The the argument is we can't be bothered with all the stuff over there. We've got to be spending our money and time and interest here at home. Um, and so you get, and or isolating the elements of our culture and and the the parts of the population that don't agree with us. That's the Michael Moore comparison of the January sixth you know uh, capital incursion with with an insurrection attempts with with what's happening right now with the Taliban. So they, they have different outcomes, I think, but the kind of thinking, that kind of very fundamentalist kind of thinking is 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 similar on both sides. Well, yeah, I think they are. I think, if, I mean, they are both sides preach that um, America is the problem. Uh, America's enemies are better than we are. Um, I think the difference comes in, in what they take to be America's original sin. Uh, on the left, it's racism. On the right, it's um, secularism and perversion or something. Um, uh, but but both are sort of um, um, ineradicably uh, uh, intertwined in, in who we are and therefore uh, uh, guarantees our doom, I think. I mean, I, I, I share your fear, John. Like, I, I don't know that they're reading their room wrong. I, I, I don't know. Um, I think that remains to be seen. Everyone is getting very, everyone's getting a huge kick out of running down America these days. Like that's, 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 that's sort of why you get into political discussions now, you know, to talk about how awful everything is. Um, And that's, there's a sort of runaway pleasure in that uh, for, for some people. And I don't know where that stops, to be honest. Look, I mean, Churchill in 1938 famously said when uh, when we were told or the world was told that there would be peace in our time and Czechoslovakia was Sudetenland was handed to um, to Hitler. Right. He famously said um, you had a choice between dishonor and war. You chose dishonor and you will have war. That's one of the great quotes of the century. Um and, you know, Churchill said, I do not grudge our loyal, brave people who are ready to do their duty no matter what the cost, who never flinched under the strain of last week. I do not grudge them the natural, spontaneous outburst of joy and relief when they learned that the hard ordeal would no longer be required of them at the moment, but they should know the truth. Meaning, you know, Britons cheered when when Chamberlain came back and said he brought peace for our time. Maybe the one salvation here for the United States is that we are not seeing we are not seeing cheering. We are not seeing people say, "Thank God we're out of there." We're not out of there. And you know, Churchill was this was he was the most prophetic person of the 20th century. He was somebody who saw exactly what was going to happen. You know, ten years before, seven, eight years before. Uh, World War II began, he was sounding the alarms about everything that was happening, and he got it right, and he became prime minister and led the country and helped lead the West to its victory because people turned to him and said, I guess you really are the only person here who saw what was happening. But you do have this world of people who think that the dishonor is ours, in other words, we're choosing dishonor because we are dishonorable. And Abe's right. The left and the right have different definitions of why we are dishonorable. The question is, 
who will stand up for America being honorable. And right now, the leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, does not believe America is honorable. It's only honorable conditionally because it let him, you know, sneak into the presidency through the means of the electoral college trick that then denied him the presidency a second time. But his his beliefs about America are entirely conditional. But the left's beliefs about America are entirely conditional. Remember, Michelle Obama said she was proud of America for the first time in her life only because her husband was doing well in the primaries. That's the only reason to be proud of America you know, thanks very much for revealing how you feel about this country as as the person who is going to be, you know, its first lady. Um, why the dishonorable caucus has now become a sort of plurality of the American cultural conversation, that's new. It's just, it's a new thing. Everybody was tired of Vietnam by 1975. Everybody was tired. The world of people who were saying we need to stay there and win was non-existent. It wasn't that people said we needed to stay there and win. Um, it was that it was, you know, it would be dishonorable to leave and let the, let the Vietnamese fall, but that the South Vietnamese fall, but that wasn't really that, that conversation could no longer be supported in the public discussion. But the consequences in the three or four years that followed it meant that we had a decade of popular culture in which we ran through scenarios in which the United States went back to Vietnam and won the war that it had lost. Rambo, uncommon valor, going back and saving the POWs, the revision of popular history in popular culture that spoke to what we would now think of as the Trump voter, the Reagan Democrat, the American veteran, all of that, those guys, this was very powerful. And it was, and Red Dawn and other things. When you say, oh, Reagan was a militarist and he remilitarized the country, he didn't remilitarize the country. The country looked and saw what the consequences were of that policy in the 1970s. And it reared in revulsion and horror and disgust. And we're talking about a time frame. This is why people are saying this is worse than Saigon. Like, we knew Saigon was coming. It looked worse than we could ever possibly know. We did not know that this was coming. I mean, I think we knew that it was going to collapse. What we're seeing now, we didn't know was coming. It looks worse than Saigon. People running down runways, chasing planes, climbing into wheel, you know, falling from the sky, being being chopped up, you know, in the air, simply to escape the horror that that was that was befalling them. That's new. That was a new. That's a new thing. I was just going to say we should get to the Jake Sullivan press conference because the lack of of uh, the press holding accountable uh, a Biden uh, policy planner for the fact that you they had to revise their estimate. They said ninety days till till Kabul fell, and they they had what seventy two hours. I mean, the idea that that the huge huge incompetence on display over the last few days in terms of what they thought would happen and what did that needs to be constantly examined and reexamined, not just by Congress, but our our media needs to be on that for much longer than it's so far signaling it will be. It will be, but who knows? The, the intelligence community is engaging in so much ass covering right now <laughs> in leaking to the press. What, who knows what they knew and what policymakers knew and what didn't. I, I wouldn't trust, you know, the intelligence sources tell us. I wouldn't trust that at all. Also, 
by the way, it doesn't matter what they said. Biden clearly would have done this, whatever they said. Like, it's ridiculous to say the intelligence committee told Biden everything was going to be fine. He wanted to do this. It, it, we began with the conclusion, and then he got some document that supported his conclusion. That was the document that he took to, you know, to his conviction that intelligence reports aren't aren't the be all and they're not the policymaker. They're not the thing that makes policy. You can't blame the intelligence report. Like I said, we're sitting around the table. Like it wouldn't have been hard for somebody to say, ah, uh, you know, if we if we pull out and we leave Bagram. Uh, you know, uh, the Afghan, and we don't provide any air support, the Afghan army is going to melt away or is, you know, by the way, they didn't melt away. I should, I want to apologize. I've been, I've been saying that they melted away or that this, you know, that this followed sort of the pattern in Iraq. That is actually not true. I mean, according to reports, 50,000 Afghani military men have died this year in in a desperate effort to prevent the Taliban from taking, think about that. That's 50,000 people. That's, that's the entire death toll, uh, the American death toll in 12 years in Vietnam. Yeah, I think that's roughly the space between 2014, 2015 when we ended combat operations and today. Are you sure? Because that, anyway. uh, I don't believe I, I, I'd be willing to bet okay. almost 90 percent that okay. 50,000. OK, but they didn't. But in any case, they didn't melt away. They did not melt well, away. They fought. We, support, they fought we engaged back. in air, close air support on um, in defense of Kandahar, in defense of Herat. Um, we were we were engaged. You know, Biden administration was compelled to re restart close airstrikes um, from you know having no bases there from strikes from the Persian Gulf. Uh, but they didn't want to do that, and they were absent. Afghan National Army was absolutely mounting a stirring defense. It was only, really only a forty eight hours between. I guess it was Saturday and Sunday, uh, yeah. Friday night to Sunday morning when, when Kabul fell. They, they, you really did see a, a total collapse. But right. there was a valiant defense. Up to uh, up to that period, right? And by the way, let's speak to Biden's libeling of the Afghan people then in his speech. I mean, it's one thing to say that Ghani, the president, like fled with a suitcase full of money. If he did, you know, he's now in the United Arab Emirates, and now it turns out no one really knew where he was. Um, maybe he's bad. You know, he's terrible. The Afghan people did not do anything to deserve this. They it was not the Afghan people who needed to stand up to the Taliban. That's not how it works. You don't send people out and say, you know, with, you know, it's like, it's their fault that they, that the Afghan people, what is it, what is it the Afghan people didn't do exactly? Um, and he just sort of elided the distinction between a leader that he lost confidence in and was mad at and the entire nation uh, that that, you know, leader led and, and failed just as he is failing the United States. Um, guys, I got to talk to you about the X chair. You've heard me talk about it. Day after day after day, with that dynamic variable lumbar support, always always best in class, incredible responsive low back support, and now it's got that patent-pending LMX temperature regulation system in the chair, built into the chair. If you're feeling a bit warm, you can set it to cooling. If the air conditioning is too high, you can set it to heating. Feeling stressed? Turn on LMX massage therapy and relax. It's all built into the chair. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Never a better time to ditch that old no-name office chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. Letter X, word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. To save 100 bucks off your order, X-CHAIR is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase 
for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free XWheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Abe, uh, I, I just wanted to point out one last thing, which is that uh, Stephen Miller, um, you know, Trump's immigration factotum, one of those people who was saying we're going to get a flood of evil Afghans or something. I don't quite know what it is that he said. Ben Sass, senator from Nebraska, of course, who was sort of setting himself up as Trump's chief critic in the Republican Party and, uh, you know, sort of like got concussed by the Trump wave back and, you know, spent the Trump years trying to get his sea legs into what, what it was he could say or could not say. Uh, ben Sass said yesterday, I don't give basically a shit what Stephen Miller has to say about anything. And I bring this up only to say, maybe Noah's right in that and some other areas. Maybe this is where you see the bifurcation or at least ground on which a certain type of American politician can stand to say, Biden's disgusted me. He's destroy- he's doing things that are destroying this country's credibility and its future and its economic wholeness and all of that. But you cannot let these people in. They, they laid the groundwork for everything that is going on here. They instituted fiscal indiscipline and they... And they started this feckless process that is leading to this catastrophic situation with our foreign policy. What what prospects do you see for that as you as you share with me this pessimism about whether or not the America stinks argument is gaining purchase everywhere? Well, the, I, I'm, I remain concerned because primarily I think the issue is you, you can, this is obviously not where I stand, you can look at what's going on in Afghanistan and primarily blame two parties, two groups, uh, the Democrats, obviously, because this is, this is done under Biden. And if, what, if you are uh, uh, a MAGA type, the wrong type of Republican. So in a sense... What's happening now almost carves out um, this um, sort of tailor-made space for Trump and his type of arguments. It's you—you you can look at what's happening now. I mean, dishonestly, and say, "Well, this is this is a combination of um, neocons and neoliberals uh, destroying us once again." And 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 this is this is the exact kind of um, dishonest argument that 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 I fear will will gain traction. Sorry. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, crushing morosity. Got that T-shirt at merch.commentary.org that says crushing morosity on it. Abe should be modeling it for you right now on the basis of that answer. Uh, maybe we'll get a shot of him in that T-shirt if you buy it. We'll send it to you. T-shirt, sweatshirt, crushing morosity. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow uh, for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.